I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and this is a special session for our American Conversations as well as our Global Conversations in Plain Sight shows. We want this to go out far and wide because everybody had their eyes on January 6th. And today um, I am honored to have my good friend, Laura Logan, with us to talk about her new 14-part series. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Christine. You're one of the best. Well, uh, I'm honored that we're the first that gets your interview on this. Uh, folks, this is about January 6th. This is a 14-part segment series called The Rest of the Story about January 6th. It's the stories behind the scenes. Now, before we get into this, Laura, I want to point out something to the audience because I watched all of January 6th as I have also you know, watched many select committees in the past, one of which you and I both knew a lot about, which is um, the Benghazi <laughs> yes, attack going back <laughs> almost a decade. Uh, but what makes it interesting about the January 6th hearing is that for the first time in um, my entire career that I can ever remember, the Congress hired a former president of ABC News, somebody who was born in Britain, James Hudson, yeah. and he had produced documentaries in, in uh, the UK. He had also produced Nightline. He had produced Good Morning America. He was the president of a US network. And they hired him to produce it. But they not only hired him to produce it, they hired somebody whom I found to be out of line uh, in, in terms of the lineup for the staff direct for the staff directorship which was a guy named David Buckley. David Buckley is the former CIA inspector general. <laughs> he was the head of the staff behind the January 6th. We also know that during the uh, January 6th hearings, it didn't operate like a normal hearing going back and forth, no. Democrat, Republican. It was scripted in terms of the questions that were asked. There were, it looked like teleprompters in the boxes below as people were uh, saying what they were saying uh, during the hearings and asking questions. It was very well produced. I called it a docudrama at the time. I still think that it is a docudrama because it only presented one side of the picture. And now you're presenting the rest of the story, which is going to be explosive. 
tell us how, first of all, how this came to be, you know, journalistically for you to decide how to do this. And then let's get into some of the pieces of this, because this really is good journalism when we when we recognize that what the Congress produced with people from our business, as well as with an inspector general from the CIA, you know, editorially guiding it and, you know, in terms of the investigation, that was really just one side. And now you're going to bring forth everything else. Well, not everything else, but we'll do our best, you know. I mean, January 6th is vast. And what's interesting about the January 6th committee is that it's kind of like a coming out party for the truth. And I don't mean the truth about January 6th. I mean the truth about our government, right, and <clears throat> who's really running things and how theatrical. I mean, it really is like a um, just a theater production playing out on the on the world stage, and they're not even hiding it anymore. It used to be that at least the politicians pretended they were trying to do a real investigation, whereas here they, I mean, you know, they had all the bells and whistles of a Broadway show um, or a Hollywood movie set, and you know, and that was um, that really should have been a wake up call to so many people because. They're not even hiding it anymore. They're just doing it right in front of all of us. And um, unfortunately, the casualty is there are many casualties of this, right? I mean, first of all, there's the American people because we, we need to have the truth. Everybody wants the truth. And, and how can we really function if we don't know what that is? We can't fix our mistakes. We can't apologize. We can't move forward in a meaningful way or anything like that. But, you know, none of that had anything to do with what happened to me. I was working on child trafficking, you know, something you've worked on for many years. I was working on a number of other things. And <clears throat> I happened to watch a documentary film about Roseanne Boylan, the death of Roseanne Boylan, who was a, um, a young woman who uh, went to the Capitol on January 6th. And many people, including myself, had absolutely no idea that she died that day. Right. And I was just shocked that, uh, you know, I'm someone who is uh, you know, like you, it's part of our jobs, right? To be well informed. It's part of our jobs to track major events that are happening. Right. And, um, and so while I was working on another series for Fox nation, when January 6th was, was happening and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there, but I was it's still something that felt like I knew about, you know, kind of like when I was diagnosed with cancer, I suddenly realized I knew nothing about cancer, you know, right. something I thought I understood. And that was how it was with January 6th is that I, I, at the moment I learned about Roseanne Boyland, I, my first reaction was, oh my gosh, how could I not know? My second reaction was guilt. We're journalists, right? It's our job to know about things that matter. And so in that moment, I knew I was going to tell Roseanne Boylan's story. I was at least going to try. And that's what led me to, um, to you know, down this path. But I will just tell you very quickly, I got a call out of nowhere from a January 6th defendant, Jake Lang, who was very instrumental in um, trying to save Roseanne Boylan's life and the lives of people next to her, including a young man, Philip Anderson, um, who probably, well, I mean, he says he would have been dead. He would be dead today if it weren't for Jake Lang. And so um, these are the people that led me 
to do this. And I found a partner in Truth and Media, Ben Swan, because most people today don't don't uh, have the ability or understand the need to pay for real investigative journalism. But Ben is a journalist, and so he does, and he made that happen financially. That's great. Okay, so tell the audience about her story because you know don't give it away we want people to watch <coughs> but also just in terms of you know what was the shocking part about this because it is a very intriguing story well you know one of the things that really um hurts breaks my heart these days is um is that as as journalists and as um media organizations we censor by ignoring as much as we censor, uh, you know, by overt censorship, right? And all the propaganda that's that's gone on in the media um, for the last few years, um, probably longer than that. But so what, what do I mean by that? Well, it really was sad to me that Roseanne Boyland was reduced to this, you know, um, this Trump supporter who was assumed then um, to be racist and, and homophobic and misogynistic and, you know, to be every evil thing that has been associated with, with uh, anyone who supported President Trump. And so Roseanne Boylan was written off for those reasons. And then she was deliberately and intentionally written off as a drug addict because it was first reported that, you know, one minute it was reported that she was a drug addict, she died of an overdose, and then it was it was also reported that she was, you know, trampled to death by fellow protesters, you know, and all of this. And there was nothing in there about who Roseanne Boylan really was, and there was nothing about what really happened to her. Why was she there on January 6th? How did she get into the tunnel where um, she was... Uh, really sucked under the crush of people as the police forced them out of the tunnel. And um, and then she was beaten by a, capital, a Metropolitan Police Department officer, Lila Morris, who uh, beat her brutally while she lay on the ground, unconscious and unarmed. And um, there were many uh, supporters around her, Trump supporters, protesters, whatever you want to call them, who tried to help her, tried to save her life, her best friend, Justin Winchell, was begging for help, begging the police to stop, begging them to help her. And really, you had this terrible situation in uh, in the tunnel that made no sense. Because on the one hand, you had people who, and I've interviewed one after another after another, who had no intention, you know, of, of uh, really forcing their way inside. And then you had police officers, you know, who were in that tunnel coming forward, talking about how they were crushed and the terrible injuries they had. And so I was left trying to understand what on earth happened in that tunnel. And, you know, and what happened, um, part of what happened is that you had uh, innocent people like Roseanne Boyland, like Philip Anderson, um, like Tommy Tatum, like Colt McAbee, who <clears throat> were pushed into the tunnel by people deliberately pushing from behind and who were crushed between those people and the police who for some inexplicable reason were ordered to force people out of that tunnel um, and people like Roseanne Borland were casualties of uh, the violence that ensued when those two you know those two sides met and not only was she pushed underneath um, the crush of people but it was really that beating by Lila Morris that was uh, breathtaking 
in its um, cruelty. Um, and obviously unjustified since Roseanne was lying there, unable to move, not even aware of what was going on around her and certainly not posing any kind of threat. Um, and you know what's interesting, Christine, is We'll, something we'll show you in the uh, episodes uh, that cover Roseanne Boylan's death is uh, how quickly and easily that tunnel was cleared when the authorities decided to do that. So then the other part, you know, uh, we don't only tell Roseanne Boylan's story. There are a number of different stories in this series. But one of the things that was really important to me personally, one of the things I learned as a correspondent at 60 Minutes the value of doing this is is going uh, going on a journey, taking the audience with you on a journey into who she was, you know. Mm -hmm. And and Roseanne Borland was a uh, I learned I I discovered was a fantastically uh, funny and warm and irreverent person. Quite frankly, the kind of uh, person that you and I would have enjoyed hanging out with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'll tell you, I don't even know if this is making it into the piece because we're still working on the series, but I want to tell you a, a funny story. She was a recovered drug addict and she had been through an incredible amount and she had overcome, which, you know, any, I mean, most people understand how terribly, you know, brave and difficult that is. And she had put all of that behind her. So it was especially cruel to cast her in the media as this drug addict who died of an overdose, which wasn't true at all. Um, but one of her friends who was a, um, I believe he was a recovered addict as well. Yes, he was. Um, fabulous uh, young man that we met was telling us a story about how they were driving the one day and they pulled, uh, you know, they pulled up at this light and there was a homeless person there. And Roseanne turned to him and said, Oh, Nick, I want you to meet my sponsor, you know, and the two of them uh, really laughed so much about this, you know, because they were laughing at themselves and they were laughing at everything they'd been through. And, um, and they were, uh, they, they really, she had some extraordinary relationships and with great people and you know that always says a lot about a person and through them through their pain and uh through their courage we were able to discover who she really was and that was a gift that reminded you know that just reminds you why we do this work well we do this work because therefore the grace of god go all of us I mean, if we, you know, I've often said in the last three years when the, the, the boom of the censorship came down, it wasn't just social, social media, but just the gaslighting of people. If, if we continue to censor, if we continue to gaslight, if, we, if editors continue to cancel uh, investigative journalism, you and I might as well hang it up and say, what have we been doing all these decades? Well, we both know that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's I mean, why we're talking today, sister. I mean, it, it, it is. I mean, we're both fighters on this, and we both know yeah. that at the end of the day, the truth will reign. It might take us a little while to do it, and there may the be truth further, will reign. But the rest of yeah. the story is going to be there. Tell us about some pivotal moments when you do this, because I know always, you know, when we when we get into these investigations, it, there's that epiphany moment, and you in, if you're doing 14 episodes, I know that you, you've had probably 48, you know, <laughs> epiphany moments because you can have four or five of them within each storytelling. I mean, this it's an art to, t to tell 
the rest of the story because it was so contrived up on Capitol Hill. doesn't matter where you come from, whether somebody should have gone through windows yeah. and hammered through it. It's, it's, this, is, this is the story behind the headlines, the story behind the hearings, putting the yes. human face on it, which you're so, so, uh, I mean, you're so experienced in doing a lot. Well, you know, Christine, what's, what really bothers me is that I, we're not trying to convince people um, anything about January 6th, right? I'm not trying to justify what anybody did or didn't do, what they should have gone, shouldn't gone. That's not our job. That's not my job. Um, I just, I just meet people every single day that have no idea what really happened on January 6th. And um, still today, when I get invited to go and speak and be at places, you know, sometimes people will say to me, oh, you know, by the way, can you just, you know, can you not mention January 6th? I know you're working on it, but can you not talk about it? And that's what they- Don't talk about reality. You know, excuse me. If you don't want it to happen again, then you have to talk about it and you have to explain about what happened. But that's such an indicator, right, of mm -hmm. how much January 6th. I mean, when you turn something, when you make it so toxic that no one wants to touch it, right, there's a reason people have done that. And I, I think the reason is that they, they don't want people to know the truth. And you may know the truth about January 6th and still think people shouldn't have gone to the Capitol. You don't have to agree with people. You know, I mean, there are people who are going to hate Trump to his dying day and they're not interested in, in hearing any other side of it. And that's their right. But at least let them have the truth so they can look at it and they can make an honest decision and they can make one that's based on real knowledge and they can say, you know what? I don't care about any of that. This is how I feel. Okay, well, that's how you feel. So mm -hmm. for me, what, what was just startling with January 6th is, you know, one moment you're looking at something and you're like, oh boy, wow. Like the police did that? Man, that's terrible. And then you see something else and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Wow. Like how could they have done that? to the police, like how could they have put them in that position? And so what you start to realize as you peel back the layers is how profoundly dishonest the whole thing was from start to finish. And um, you know, how many people had their hands in January 6th who have gotten away with it scot-free, right? It's not the police officers. Yes, there were police officers on the front line who did things that they should not have done. There were protesters who did things they should not have done. But somebody else set the stage for well, those things to occur. I still haven't, I still haven't met anybody that knows the answer to this. Who put up the noose up on Capitol Hill? Who, who put up that structure with, you know, a rope? I mean, yes. Yeah. To me, to me, the, that's, the that's, makeshift guillotine. Oh, you know, I got, I've got a better one for you, and this isn't even in the series. And the guillotine is right now not in the series. So January six is vast, right? And one of the things I've learned as a journalist over the years is that scale, like the bigger your lie, the amazingly, the harder it is for people to prove that it's a lie. I mean, it, wasn't it? It was Joseph Goebbels who said, if you tell a lie big enough. No one will believe it isn't true. And that's what you, you know, that's what you see, for example, reconstruction in Iraq, you know, and Afghanistan. I mean, what a disaster, what a colossal disaster those programs were 
for the most part. But it was, but the fraud was so big, you know, and the lie was so big that it was really hard. You could show, you know, here's a piece here, here's a piece there. And I did, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I showed reconstruction of clinics and hospitals where they had blood just pouring into the clean water supply out of the operating rooms, you know, well, the things no like that. They had but no windows, no electricities, no water. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And but funny. none of those things really get to the heart of the lie. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things with January 6th is that the scale of this um, is so big that nobody can ever um, expose it all. Like I'm, I'm I want people to know right now, if you're expecting that I'm going to have the answer to everything, do not think that way because that is impossible. And then, you know, an expectation is being raised that can never be met. And I know when people are disappointed, right? That's always oh, yes. bad. That's oh, yes. always so bad. And so what I would around, tell you, they'll turn around what and say, I would say about the guillotine. The guillotine is just like the pipe bombs. It makes no sense, right? Nobody can go onto capital grounds with something like that constructed or build it and uh, and there be no way to find out who they are, no record of it, no clear sign of who was responsible. Now, maybe you say this and they put, come up with a scapegoat, scapegoat, right? Because I'm used to that too. I, I mean, what, we watch these tactics now for a long time and people are wise to them, right? You say there's no one being held responsible, they come up with someone responsible, you know? Right. You say in the media, well, no one's been charged with insurrection and oh, look, lo and behold, what do they do? They drag out the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and suddenly you have an insurrection. Um, <laughs> even though, even though, I mean, we all, I mean, anyone with half a brain can see that that doesn't meet, meet any definition of an insurrection. It's a, it's a joke. It would be a joke and it would actually be laughable if there weren't so many people whose lives and families have been obliterated because of, the, of you know, them trying to hold up a lie. So what I would say to you about the guillotine is, the, the Capitol grounds, you know, the Capitol building is a counterterrorism zone. Right. It is, they, I mean, when I was up there filming Christine and I actually took stills pictures of this because I recognized it immediately, you know, from the battlefield. And I was like, wait a minute, what is that doing here? That is a uh, 360 degree FLIR thermal camera system that is pointing down the mall. Not only does it cover the whole Capitol grounds, it covers all the way, you know, to uh, the other side, right? Mm -hmm. Down the mall uh, to the Washington Monument. I mean, you can see everything. So um, the idea, when you understand the technology, they always play on our unfamiliarity or our ignorance, what we may not know. They play on that because if you know what they know, Right. You know that they can see everything. They can find anyone. They can recognize anybody they want to and they can do whatever the hell they want. In fact, Philip Anderson says that to me, Lara, he's like, they have nukes and F-15s. And, you know, if they wanted to secure the Capitol, they could have secured the Capitol. And every police officer that I have spoken to um, who does this, you know, this kind of big crowds and all the rest of it for a living, they all say, they didn't want to secure the building because if they wanted to, it would have looked like it did on January 7th. Now, okay. of course, the argument is, well, we didn't want the optics to look bad, but go back, go back to the gen, you know, to, to previous uh, Trump rallies in D.C. after the election. 
and see, they had no problem putting a National Guard outside or uniformed offices uniformed. outside the Capitol in a show of force, you know? And so there were many other times they didn't mind those optics. So those optics are political arguments that, you know, are pulled out for expediency and um, and to obscure things, right? And this is information warfare. And what those op those arguments do is they muddy the waters so people are like, well, you know, maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. It holds no weight. It, it really doesn't because you have the, the head of Capitol Police, Stephen Sun, has written in his book and has said this in interviews. Absolutely. You know, I mean, he drove all around the Capitol. He saw buildings boarded up. I mean, that entire city was buckled down in preparation and it wasn't for Trump supporters. It was for the left. It was for the Antifa, the anarchists of Antifa and the other violent protesters that had burned down businesses and smashed windows in Washington, D.C., you know, throughout the Trump administration and after the election um, in preparation, right? You know, um, before and after the election. And so, um, and how do we know that? Well, businesses wrote notes. They wrote, you know, well, they, only, they, they, wrote, they wrote notes, but they also, I mean, we, we know this because of the Black Lives Matters demonstrations that were. That well, were but that's what I'm saying is they wrote notes to BLM saying, yeah. please don't burn down my building. I support BLM. I mean, you know, when you're putting those notes on your boarded up business, it's not Trump supporters you're worried about. Right. I mean, they're not mm -hmm. the ones you're writing letters to. And so and this was all over Washington, D.C. So and, and now. Um, you know, Sand has also written about the threat, you know, of white supremacy and all the other threats and everything. The federal government wants it both ways. They want to say, well, we had, you know, we had vast numbers of undercover um, agents and confidential sources because we were so worried about the white supremacist terrorist threat, right? And yet at the same time, we didn't put up any real security at the Capitol where all right. those people were coming. And we knew they were coming because we issued permits to the rallies that we knew they attend. That's right. Plus, plus we were following all these groups. You know, I, I, I can't prove this, but I suspect based on my research and work, and I, I'm sure a lot of people have figured this out too, is that, you know, a vast majority of those social media conversations um, are, are with FBI informants and uh, undercover agents. And how no one has been prosecuted for entrapment. I mean, I, I know, I know there's no justice today and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you know, if that's what you really think, if you think there can be no justice whatsoever ever again in the United States of America, then, um, then what are you doing? <laughs> Where are on you? That, on that note, let's take a break here. And on the other side of that, I want to ask you about that philosophically. Where are we and where do you want to go with this series? I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, an investment advisory practice. I've been an advisor for nearly 30 years, and one of the questions I get asked most frequently is, do I have enough money relative to other people my age? And while that's an interesting question, it's also the wrong question. The right question is, is do you have enough money to sustain your lifestyle for the rest of your life? This is a question you should know the answer to. This is what we do. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big proud American Eagle logo. Okay, Laura, welcome back. <clears throat> Let's talk about how we figure out what we're going to do 
for the impact of this, because you and I have had a lot of philosophical and professional conversations about the, the, the how investigative journalism is sort of the rock right now that needs to be grown in our profession. We have to teach a younger generation who was born after 1990. Um, and, you know, they're, they're born, <laughs> they didn't grow up in pre-internet world. So they don't know what journalism looked like under Moreau. They don't know what the next generation with Sandy Van Oker and Hal Bruno. They don't know, you know, Peter Jennings' generation. And so how do we, how do we take a look at this series, all right, the rest of the story, and put it in the context of the lessons that people should learn and what they should hold in their heads as they're watching your 14-part series roll out over the next several weeks? Well, one of the first things that I would like people to understand is that we're a small team and we're working around the clock. And um, no one I'm working with has ever worked at 60 Minutes. And so we're learning uh, from each other and teaching each other as we go. And what's, you know, the reason for that, part of the reason is people today think that, you know, stick up a microphone, do a podcast, do a blog, and and that's um, that's come to define journalism as a whole. And what I say is those things are very, very important and they're very valuable, but they're not everything. And if we lose investigative, disciplined investigative work, right? Uh, you know, if that falls away because one, nobody, you know, is old enough to know what it is. No one is reminding people what it is. No, no one's one training is, these people at the network. No one's, no one's training them or teaching them. No institutions that exist in the, in the profession are fighting for it. They're not fighting at Columbia Journalism Review and the colleges and, and all of these places, the Pointer Institute. I mean, these places have, uh, have become propaganda assassination units. You know, that's all they do is assassinate people like you and me if we dare to go outside the narrative. I mean, they will come after this series. Uh, they will probably find things um, that they can to take it down with. They will attack me. They will attack Ben Swan. They will attack, you know, the funding. They will, they will they will attack us because I'm supporting this because I think that this. Yes, needs to they be will come after you. They you know what? And my my attitude at this point is bring it on because I may have been in the business longer than some of these little kids have even been alive. So that's that that's my attitude now. It's it's turning into it's actually turning into some fun. You know, and that's because, where you've got to get to, Christine. You've exactly. got to get to where it is actually fun. You don't care about them anymore. And I don't care about them. But what I do care about is that young people are coming up and no one dreams of being an outlier, being cast out from the community, not being recognized for any of your work, being uh, attacked. Because anyone who's going to stand up and do this kind of work and is going to follow the facts wherever they take them, tell the rest of the story that's not being being told or, you know, tell stories that nobody wants, uh, powerful people don't want told, but actually many other people, ordinary people do, you know, smart people do, honest people do, decent people do. So, you know, when you, when you're, if you're choosing to go that route, you got to understand there's no Emmys, 
There's no Pulitzers. There's no big paycheck. You know, there's no big budget. You're going to be doing it like I'm doing it harder than I've ever done it in my life. Um, congratulations to you because, I mean, it, it, I know it, it comes from a point of passion and just moral outrage. And Same as God, you, Christine. Yeah, I know. Same I was just going to tell the story. I know 23 years ago I had approved to people, not that slavery was immoral. I had approved that it was alive and well in the cusp of the 21st century, it just had a different face on it. And I, when I took yes. on the Catholic church, I had to tell my Catholic brethren and sisters, you know, no, this, 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 uh, this collar does, you know, the priest wear, be careful that, 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 that headdress that the bishops carry on top of their, you know, skull may not stand for what you think it is. So, I mean, it is, it's going up against the tide. And and, yes, and and look at you, Christine, you're still out there every day hustling and fighting and working harder than you ever have. You're not your name isn't taught in journalism schools. They're not making movies about your work. Why? Because they're, they, they want to suppress it, because mm -hmm. what you have done, as Gary Webb said, right, the journalist who reported on Dark Alliance, who supposedly shot himself twice in the head after the CIA and everybody went behind the scenes and took down his reporting, you know, which they've now, of course, admitted it was true, right? What Gary Webb said, the CIA did bring crack cocaine into the U.S. and into black neighborhoods and to fund their off-the-books operations in Latin America, right, in places like Nicaragua and others. But when Gary Webb reported it, he was first celebrated, and then they worked behind the scenes, they worked against him, and ultimately he ended up dead, right, and disgraced. And, uh, and Gary Webb said he'd never written anything important enough to suppress before that moment when they destroyed him for his reporting. And that's the same thing with, you know, with you and I um, and, and all of the others that they go after. What we're doing is important enough for them to suppress. That's why they put time and effort into going after us. If it wasn't important and it wasn't true, they wouldn't bother. They don't put resources. It takes money. It takes infrastructure. It takes effort. It takes, you know, there are real resources that go into discrediting people like us, right? Mm -hmm. And so and so they wouldn't do it if it wasn't worth the, the investment to them, which means it's important. But what I would say to people is, you know, so everything is not perfect. I'm not perfect. And there's many things that I would have, you know, wanted uh, to be different as the series goes, series goes out. I mean, I was working until 4.30 in the morning last night. Not the first time I've done that. I did it many times in 60 minutes. But there we had a corporation and a news division and attorneys and all kinds of people behind us. Here, I've got a handful of really committed people who want to do this and they want it to be worth something and they want to do it right. And, um, and it's, that's, you know, that's the band of brothers, right, fighting on the front line. And it is a great thing to be part of. I'm, I am, I'm really grateful for this team. And also, but I would say to you, it costs money to do it right. Absolutely. You know, and yes, and and so sacrifices the sacrifice is big when you've got this mountain to climb. But, yes, but the, it's and, and so I would say to people before you pile on, you know, before you attack it, before you push it down, 
understand that, you know, we're fighting for our lives here. We're fighting for real journalism to survive. We're fighting for the life of this country. We're fighting for the lives of people who are victims of injustice, not as activists, but as journalists, so that we can put the truth out there. I, I would say to young people and to people who want to be investigative journalists, please understand the distinction. We, you know, a lot of people try to paint me as a champion of January 6th and this and that. I am not. I am a champion of the truth and the truth is on your side, you know? And so therefore you're, you're benefiting from this, but it's not because I'm out there as an activist suppressing things that might hurt you, focusing only on things that help you know, I'm not an attorney. I'm not standing in a court of law. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to prove a case. I am simply trying to bring to the American people stories that we believe matter because you've got families across this nation who've been misrepresented, they've been targeted, they've been treated as terrorists for exercising their First Amendment rights. You have police officers whose lives were put in danger. You have protesters who were set up. You have people all over this country who have uh, been subjected to extraordinary injustice that goes against the grain, that stands against everything this country is supposed to represent. And I don't believe that Democrats or Republicans benefit from these lies, and I don't believe that they, believe this, they support them. I know there are people out there who are blinded. I know there are people, you know, who for many reasons don't want to hear the truth, but I truly do believe in my heart that when you tell stories well, and we've, we've done our best, that you can reach beyond that. You can reach beyond the politics and, um, and you can do something that matters. You know, when I walk into the room, when I, when I meet people like the James family, like Aaron James who served this country as a medic on the battlefield, and all he did was pick up a shield so that other people administering first aid to Roseanne Boyland so that they could do that without being gassed. And that man is facing prison. That man who never hurt anybody who, who fought for this country. And, you know, does it matter that he happens to have a, a black skin, a dark skin, and that his two brothers who are going down with him are both white, you know what I mean? And so like, that is just wrong. Victoria White was beaten almost to death. And that woman took a plea deal. She took a plea deal and uh, because she couldn't get a fair trial. She let's couldn't talk, get, let's, let's she couldn't about. get, you know, even remotely get justice. And so she, she pleaded guilty to things she didn't even do, you know, and that woman, that woman should be, have been paid millions of dollars to make up for what was done to her because she shouldn't even be alive today. Well, let's talk, let's talk about two of the saddest stories surrounding January 6th. The two young men who took their lives. There's more than it, two, Christine. How many? I mean, incredibly, there's two now. Oh, well, it's very hard to know, for, you know, uh, I don't like, I'm hesitant to put the journalist. Okay. I mean, let's hesitant put, to put a number put, on it. Let's not put a number on it. But but the the two that ha, that were in the crowd. The two recently, yes, Matthew Perna. Matthew yeah. Perna is the one that we focused on, um, who was 37 years old, and um, 
he's another person that I really uh, would have enjoyed getting to know um, because he was he was pretty cool. You know, he had he had a lot of spine. He was uh, he was not afraid to express his opinions. But he had, he had traveled the world. He lived in South Korea. He spoke. Uh, he was fluent in Thai. You know, he spent time in Thailand. He just absolutely loved Asia. He'd been to India as well, and um, he gave up everything um, overseas that he this sort of life that he built teaching English. He'd met a girl that he was madly in love with, and and when his mom uh, was. Uh, very ill with leukemia. He gave it all up to come home and nurse her. And he had the same kind of passion and love for this small town in Western Pennsylvania. And this farm. Sorry, we lost you. That's okay. But he was in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, he was from a small town in Western Pennsylvania in the Shenango uh, Valley, um, you know, where uh, Pig Iron is from. And um, these are tough these are tough people, but uh, Matthew was extraordinarily kind. You know, this is a guy who his family and friends told us so many stories. You know, once when he was a young man and, and he was working for a company that was uh, had to have layoffs, he, he volunteered his job so that this older uh, African-American gentleman wouldn't lose his. Matthew said, I'm a young guy, you know, I can find another job. And he went to the company and said, you know, give him, can he have my job? And, and they said, yes. Um, he also, he had a business online selling alkaline water that he got into health, alternative health treatments when his mother was, when he was nursing his mother from leukemia. And so, you know, there were some people who couldn't afford these water filtration mach machines, cancer patients. So Matthew went around sourcing plastic containers and filling them up with alkaline water and driving around the country. I mean, driving around the state, delivering uh, this alkaline water to cancer patients who he thought needed it, people he didn't even know. You know, this is the kind of person. And, you know, when you, hear, when you hear this, you know, and, and, and then all of a sudden it's, it's reduced. And this is why I, I, I can't wait to see this series because I, I know you know how to get to the face of humanity in your reporting. Those are the type of stories that we need to see more of. We need to see the face of humanity, no matter what political side that you're yes. on. Because at the end of the day, when he committed suicide, it was just that he committed suicide and the suicide defined him as opposed to the sadness. Oh, Christine, it was heart. January 6th that defined him. Yeah. He's not even defined by his suicide. When you look at the comments, things that people said and things that they wrote after Matthew Perna took his life. I mean, people literally uh, were dancing on his grave. You know, did everything to turn the knife a little harder and to make it uh, more brutal and painful for his family. And they're still doing it today. This is not in the past. This mm -hmm. is not something that's behind us. This is something that we're living right now. So, and, and Matthew Perna wasn't even defined by the reality and the truth of January 6th. He was defined by a lie. I mean, this is a guy, get this, Christine, Matthew Perna was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Before oh, that's Trump. right. That's right. He was. Yes. That's right. You know, so, so you mean uh, to tell me that he was racist and homophobic and all this nonsense? You know, that they've tried to say there were no black people who support Trump. If you're black and you support him, you're not really black. The same for, you know, Latinos or Hispanic Americans, whatever you want to call them. You know, it just doesn't matter. 
right? It just doesn't matter. The truth is that people from all walks of life who were sick and tired of being lied to, who didn't trust the Washington elites anymore, the political elites in this country, they stood up and they said, you know what, we're, we're, we're going we're to do what you tell us to do. We're going to exercise our constitutional rights. We're going to vote. We're going to choose our president. Isn't that what we used to teach in civics class, that that was the foundation of the American Republic? You know, well, and this you know, great what's country. What's interesting now is uh, with Bobby Kennedy running and all of a sudden the DNC yeah. is playing their own rules the same way that they did in 2016 between when Bernie and Hillary were running. Um, and now we also have the DNC telling Bobby Kennedy through these rules that are going to happen this week that mm. in fact, if Bobby wins in Iowa at the caucus, or if he wins any delegates in New Hampshire for their primary, that he may not actually get those <laughs> delegate <laughs> votes. <laughs> so basically not. we have the DNC mm -hmm. uh, with a wink and nod and a blessing turning around and saying to the people that want to take people off the ballots in some of these states, or change the, these uh, national party rules, it's okay. So we are once again in plain sight, stealing from the American people the vote that defines having a republic in the face of a democracy. I mean, the, the, everything that's going on is not a myth here. It is It is in plain sight. And, and I am thrilled that you're doing this series because you are ripping back the Wizard of Oz curtain and showing who these people are. Well, know? it's funny you say that, yes, the Wizard of Oz curtain, because I've heard that before um, from a number of different people in the intelligence community, you know, who feel that that's, uh, that's exactly what's happening. And that's what Mike Smith's film Into the Light is about, peeling back that curtain to see that the Wizard of Oz isn't a wizard at, at all, is he? You know, he's mm -hmm. just a, a, a bitter, you know, shriveled up uh, old man. And, um, and that's the thing, that's the thing that is so heartbreaking here is that while that is true at the same time for people like Colt Maccabee, who's been in prison for almost three years without a trial for trying, also trying to save Roseanne Boylan's life on January 6th, a deputy sheriff, you know, from Tennessee who had multiple awards for saving people's lives, right? You have a guy like that, that has spent an extraordinary amount of time in solitary confinement. He's never been convicted of a crime. What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What happened to the rule of law? What happened to your right to a speedy trial? You know, how they change those rules there on RFK. Well, you know what they do to the, the prisoners? They don't give any uh, discovery. And then they overwhelm you with millions of documents or you know, tens of thousands of hours of useless footage. And they try to drown you so that you will give up your right to a, fed, a speedy trial. And you will delay, you will request delays. And then during those delays, well, where are you? Well, you're in solitary confinement. You know, people like Elizabeth Warren, you just, you just have to wonder, right? What has happened to these people? They know that solitary confinement is the most extreme form of punishment that right. you can inflict on a fellow human being. They have stood up for decades 
all of their adult lives and they have spoken out against these issues and said this should be reserved you know in only the worst of the worst of the worst cases is a deputy sheriff who uh who actually saved a police officer's life when he was pulled down into the crowd who shielded him with his body is that someone who deserves to be in solitary confinement without a trial for going on three years, Christine? They had to raid his house with the FBI. They had to, I mean, his young wife, she, her whole life was on hold. They were about to start having kids. Mm. Three years later, he hasn't even gone he hasn't, before a judge or a jury. Right, and the, tra the, the emotional trauma that's behind something like that. The other day I was reading a, sort of an update on Gitmo and some of the prisoners that have been released and the art that they uh, created when they were at Gitmo and after they've been released, you know, they're, they're, they're showing to some people that are out there and some of them don't want to sell any of their art. They, they just want to hold on to those memories. And I kept on thinking, just when I was reading that story, I'm thinking when I hear about these stories of January 6th defendants that are in solitary confinement, that, that <clears throat> are denied bail, We have to really take a look at how this is being played out because it has been defined by the pictures. It's been defined by that day. It's been defined without interviewing anybody ahead of time. I know people that were there who never saw what was going on at the windows. They never were, but they were down. They were between the Capitol and they were between the ellipse. And they walked down there. I talked to one minister who told me he walked all the way down uh, the side, not the one on where the on the where the Willet is, but the, on the Constitution. And 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 there were choirs singing. It was very religious. And then he felt a darkness, you know, when people were running up towards the Capitol. He never saw it. He got out of there. But you know, we need to examine who we are, not just as a country but who we are in terms of, you know, our faces before God, because this could happen to anybody. And Laura, you and I don't even have to discuss with anybody. We know that, we, you know, when we're in foreign countries and, and they're in the, the frenzy of a crowd, we know what happens. Okay. You personally have known that I've seen it as well, but it is, it is, you know, the devil takes over. The devil takes over and innocent people do get caught up in the wrong time at the wrong moment. And sometimes that truth doesn't come out in court. And, and, I would go one beyond that, Christine. I would go beyond that to say that governments have studied what pushes a crowd mm -hmm. to go beyond sure. human decency. What are the triggers? How do you set the conditions for chaos? Governments like the U.S., they're not alone, though, have studied these tactics. They know exactly how to orchestrate that. And so one of the first things you do is, well, you know that if, if chaos erupts, people will get hurt. Innocent people will get hurt, probably people on both sides, right, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, of whatever conflict ensues. And if you want that, right, so that you can have a police officer go and testify in front of the cameras and say, you know, I, I, I didn't know, you know, my ribs were being crushed. I couldn't breathe. I didn't know if I was going to make it out of there alive. Well, right. you want that to be genuine because you want to make sure that every journalist that interviews that person then, uh, you know, then walks away, oh, breathtaking, 
a terrible story, right? But but they're not what they're not doing is pointing you in the direction of, well, let me see, where were your mounted police officers? Because a mounted officer is worth 10. One on a horse is worth 10 on the ground. I lived in Washington, D.C., you know, for years. I know they have mounted police officers. Were there any in front of the Capitol? No. Are people are people going to walk through a bicycle barrier that's unmanned? Are they just going to push that to the side? Well, yeah. Um, are they going to walk through a line of horses, of mounted police officers? No, they're not. They're mm-hmm. not. And so, you know, there's there's 40 million small details like that that paint a picture of uh, people who know how to set the conditions for chaos, who have studied exactly how to manage and manipulate and orchestrate these things. Those people, some of those people had a hand in what happened on January 6th. That's what I have learned as I've been digging deeper and deeper. And everybody's going to jump up and down and say, oh, well, who? You know, I mean, come on, people. Okay, come on. Well, I, I, can, can, I can actually say that I know somebody that, that uh, I know somebody who lost his job days before January 6th that was up on Capitol Hill in Nancy Pelosi's office. And he'd been there for decades, which was very interesting to me at the time. We also know that whenever you do investigations, that whether it's criminal or whether it's investigative journalism, that when you when it's a clue game, as it is because of the crimes that have been committed on both sides, okay, we also know that it's not always the act of commission, but it's the act of omission under normal Absolutely. circumstances. Yes. And the fact that the National Guard was not called out, was offered to be oh. called out, and was refused to be called out, well, and the fact that the head of Capitol Police asked six times yes. for and the also, National Guard. And also we know uh, from, from one of the leaders of law enforcement that there were certain communications that were never handed over to his unit, namely the possibility of violence. So pe- oh, there, were yeah. people that, there were people that were in the know. There were people that, that were in the know that contained it with silo uh, communications that didn't pass up, up to a team that was all on the same side. Somebody oh, yeah. was working against somebody on this entire operation. Without a doubt. So, but the problem is, Christine, when I say, come on, what do I mean by that? I, I mean, there are, are indicators that we can look at, right? There are significant things that happened. You know, for example, uh, political operatives were brought into the intelligence division of the Capitol Police, you mm-hmm. know, months in advance. And they got rid of a lot of people, just like you're talking about a guy in Nancy Pelosi's office, been there a long time and he was forced out. Why exactly was that? Mm-hmm. You know, and these people got rid of a lot of, of people too. They also shifted the emphasis within the intelligence division away from collection to analysis. Hmm. That reminds me a little bit of Benghazi. Remember when an analyst conveniently wrote, you know, a, a paper that pointed everybody towards the film, which had nothing to do with Benghazi, really. Um, right. You can make an analyst, you can guide an analyst, you can get whatever analysis you really want. And then somehow, somehow the intelligence division got reports of some violence to be expected, but those reports never made it, uh, you know, to other key players within the Capitol Police. So I can break some of that down, but you know what? They can turn around and say, well, it was incompetence. Well, it was an oversight. Well, it was a mistake. Well, it was this, well, it was that. You know, when I, when I say 
come on. I mean, it is a, it is a vast and incredibly arduous undertaking um, to figure out and get access to all the power players, uh, you know, the real puppet masters that orchestrate these things. And there are different levels of orchestration, mm -hmm. right? And these operations, as if you learn to understand how they're run, they're compartmentalized so that even if you can get and break down one, you know, part of the operation, it doesn't lead you to everything else. It doesn't just open the lid and you see it all laid bare, right? I mean, and so these are things uh, that some, some of this is outside the scope of what I'm able to do. I mean, uh, it's, outside, it's outside the scope of people who have to understand that even if, you know, I think of analysis like statisticians. You can take numbers, you can take information. The analyst takes the information, the statistician takes the numbers, and then they fold it into whatever narrative that they want it to be there. So I think that what may happen here, if I can just make a small prediction, is that there are going to be some people who don't like you telling this series. They don't like you telling <laughs> yes. these stories oh, yeah. because you're going to put the human face on it. And then they're going to come in and they're going to try to distort you. And Laura, I want you to know that um, I'm going to have your back here as much as I possibly can because I, I understand the game. And the, and the thing is, I think doing 14 series, 14 episodes of stories that haven't been told and doing the rest, what do we call this? The rest of the story series is a great juxtaposition to everything that was staged as a point of view on the January 6th hearings because it was staffed, the leader of the staff was a guy who signed the Hunter Biden laptop yeah. letter. Let's be serious about this. This guy's name is David, David um, Buckley. Okay, and David Buckley yeah. is a former CIA uh, inspector general. So his name is on that 51 letter. And yeah. yet they hired him. And we now know that, you know, the laptop from hell really did come from hell. And it's for real. Yeah, I've got one. I've got one better for you, Christine. Okay. That sums it up. Take a guess how many times the January 6th committee mentioned the name Roseanne Boylet. Zero. Zero. So that yeah. goes into our analysis of it's I not mean, she the died. act of commission, it's the yes. actual mission. Yeah. She actually died. You know, and there's footage of it and evidence of it. And the Capitol Police Officer Lila Mars, who beat her, was celebrated at the Super Bowl months later. Paraded well, in I front of the nation as a hero. I can't wait to see what people's reaction is to this. Um, we're going to run th this this series as well on our network. We're going to run it out internationally and nationally and in our, on our state platforms. And, and congratulations on this, because this is going to be exciting. And I, I want feedback from the audience of what they think is this. You know, I don't I don't want, you know, a thousand people telling me and, oh, you know, Three minutes in, I disagree with this. No, no, no. Take it all in, digest <laughs> it, inhale it, you know, and then take a look at it and say, is this, is this who we are? You know, is this I who we you, are? I tell you one thing that I really, um, I really enjoyed, Christine, was that I got to travel to places in this country I had never been to. And I got to meet uh, people that, 
they don't ever, they're never represented. They're not, you know, nobody writes books about them or makes movies about them or addresses their issues or, or, you know, tells stories about them at all in the media. And that was kind of cool because I got to kind of discover all of these pretty extraordinary people. And I was like, wow, I, you know, I, I had no idea. Right. I mean, and, um, and that's always thought provoking. And so I want to leave you with one thought that this one really stuck with me. I interviewed um, a man, Tommy Tatum from Greenville, Mississippi, and probably, you know, your audience probably knows better than me that Greenville, Mississippi is incredibly poor and um, it's tough growing up there. He happens to be white, but most of the people that he grew up around uh, were not, right? As, and um, I asked him once, because one of the things that he did was he started these local radio stations. And, and so he had like 11 radio stations before January 6th. And I said to him, you know, Tommy, and, and you'll find a lot of people attacking him uh, on the internet, you know, but you won't ever find, you won't ever find someone who gave two minutes to figure out who this man is and you know as a whole and mm -hmm. i said to him why why radio stations you're not a journalist how did you get into that and he thought about it for an, a moment and he looked at me and he said you know lara he said where where i come from we're just throwaway people and i wanted to give people a voice and I thought about that so much, Christine, because that was mm -hmm. kind of an epiphany for me, because I realized that when people, uh, when, you know, elitists in this country and other people who do it without thinking, when they say flyover country, what they do they really mean? mean flyover. They, they really, really mean throwaway country. That's what they mean. They mean that most of the United States, most of the population of this country, millions of people, like the millions tens of millions that voted for Donald Trump, that they're just throwaway people. They don't matter. Their stories don't matter. Their voices should never be heard. They should just be tossed aside like trash. And that's what this country is doing to millions of its people today. That's what this right. series and, is about. And what's happening currently this week is that we're, we've got the Democratic National Committee basically saying to the citizens of Iowa and to the citizens of New Hampshire, when they participate in the caucus next year and when they participate in the, in the yeah. primary next year, if you don't do it our way, we're going to gaslight you because we're in control because we have already chosen, you know, the, the, the kingdom of, of, of Biden. Yeah, because the idea that this is a real primary right. and you really matter and we come to Iowa because we care what <laughs> people in Iowa think was all a lie. It was, just, right. it was just it was just another theatrical production as theatrical as the January 6th committee hearings just without all the bells and whistles well I can't wait I can't wait you guys start this on Thursday yes. um you're still figuring out I gotta get back to work you got to get back to work and and so we've got to end this so it is the rest of the story lady and ladies and gentlemen truth in media is uh behind it with Ben Swan. Laura, thank you. Uh, and we haven't quite figured out if it's once a week, but it's 14. Once a week. Once a week on a week. Thursday. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, I'm, I'm just hoping that we that we meet those deadlines. Pray for me. <laughs> you can pray that you get some sleep. Okay. Thanks, I, I, I know what that's like. All right. God bless you. And thanks for doing this, Laura. And we will see you soon. Bye.